Yahil Dunur was a survivor of the Holocaust, which was Nazi Germany's attempt during World War II to exterminate the Jewish race. He spent two long years in one of Germany's worst concentration camps, known simply as Auschwitz, which was a complex of over 40 buildings operated by Nazi Germany and occupied Poland during the war. From early 1942 until late 1944, transport trains delivered Jews from all over German-occupied Europe to that camp's gas chambers. From the detailed records we have, of the estimated 1.3 million people who were sent to Auschwitz, at least 1.1 million were killed. That means that more than 9 out of 10 people who were sent there had their lives snuffed out in the gas chambers and then their bodies burned in the crematoriums. When the camp was liberated by the Russians in 1945, Dunur, with tens of thousands of other Jews from Europe, immigrated to British-occupied Palestine, which would later become the nation of Israel. And while there... Dunur began to write. He began to write detailing his experience there in that death camp. Interestingly, he wrote under an assumed name. That name was Katesnik, 135633. He wrote in Yiddish, and Katesnik is Yiddish for concentration camper. And the number 135633 was the number that he was assigned by the guards as a prisoner there in Auschwitz. His books, by the way, are still in print today and available on Amazon. Because of his experience as a victim of the German atrocities and someone who was brutally tortured, in 1961... Dunur was a key witness in the trial against this man, Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann, if you know anything about Nazi Germany, was a key figure in Germany's attempt to exterminate the Jews. He was one of the masterminds. After the war, unfortunately, he escaped to Argentina. And in 1960, the Mossad, which was Israel's secret service, captured him in Buenos Aires, And nine days after his capture, he was smuggled out of that country and taken to Israel where he stood trial before a special three-judge court. His capture was chronicled in an excellent movie that came out last year called Operation Finale. It's really worth seeing. Eichmann's trial lasted for nine months And at the end of those nine months, he was found guilty. And he was hung for his crimes against humanity on the 31st day of May, 1962. Interestingly, I was just nine years old at the time. But I remember that. And I remember his ashes were scattered at sea. A few years back, Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes interviewed Yahil Dunur. And during the interview, a film clip from Adolf Eichmann's 1961 trial was shown. Dunor is on the stand, 
And he's being sworn in as a witness. And for the first time in almost 20 years, Denur comes face to face with Eichmann, the mastermind behind the Holocaust, the man responsible for killing millions, killing Denur's friends and even his family members. And as he's sworn in by the judge, Denur locks eyes with Eichmann and it stops him cold. And he begins to, to sob uncontrollably. And then he faints while the presiding judge is pounding his gavel trying to bring the court to order. I want to play that actual clip that was shown to Denur on 60 Minutes. Testimony in this trial will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Would stand Auschwitz and Tumi. Get the lights. What's interesting is that at that point in the interview, Mike Wallace asked his guests, Denur, who was sobbing uncontrollably, who fainted when he saw Eichmann. Mike Wallace said, were you overcome with hatred? Was it fear? Was it the horrid memories of the torture that you endured at Auschwitz? And Denor answered and he said, no. No, it was none of that. And he went on to explain to Wallace that all at once, as he saw Eichmann, he realized that he was not the godlike army officer he thought he was, who had sent so many people to their deaths. He didn't look like a monster. He realized that Eichmann was an ordinary man. And then Denur said this. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. He said, I realized that evil is endemic to the human condition and that any one of us, any one of us could commit the same atrocities as Eichmann. And then he said, and I'm quoting now, I am exactly like he. Later as the 60-minute segment closed, Wallace summarized Denur's terrible discovery with these words. He said, Eichmann is in all of us. That horrifying statement captures the central truth about man's nature as a result of the fall. Sin. Sin is in every one of us. And it's not just a susceptibility to sin, but it's sin itself. And Denur knew that. 
It wasn't the horrors of the man Eichmann that caused Denur to sob uncontrollably and, and faint, but the horrible revelation of self that he could do exactly what Eichmann had done. And that is the predicament of all mankind. All of us, because we are in Adam, have an Eichmann in us. And that is a proven fact by our susceptibility to temptation and to sin. We're tempted by theft because we are thieves, even though we may not steal. We're tempted to kill because we're all murderers, even if we don't literally slay our brother or sister. We're all tempted to adultery because we're all adulterers, even though we may not commit the act. And I want to suggest this morning that that story is a reminder to us all that we have within us a fallen, sinful nature that we are forever doing battle with. And there are times when the evil of the human heart breaks through that thin veneer of a seemingly polite society and shows its terrifying face as it did during the Holocaust. As millions and millions and millions of innocent people were stuffed in gas chambers and then their dead bodies put in a crematorium. You know, I've said it before, but it bears repeating. It breaks my heart when I see the evil in, a world, in our world. I, 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 I grieve. I truly, truly grieve, but it doesn't surprise me. And you know what? It ought not surprise you either, especially if you know the Scriptures. And the question is, how do you deal with it? What is the secret to finding victory in this war within ourselves so that we can exercise true freedom without sliding into either legalism or moral anarchy? I want to suggest, and your Bible should be open to Galatians 5, I want to suggest that the key is found in verses 16 and 18 that we read from. Where Paul says, I want you to walk by the Spirit... And if you do that, if you will walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. He says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I want to suggest this morning that these verses are really the high point of this letter. These verses from verse 16 down to the end of this chapter are truly the most instructional, the most helpful in the entirety of this letter. Now, that's just my opinion, okay? And I hope to bear that out in the coming weeks that we have. Now, just for the benefit of some of you who may not have been here in the past, let me just mention the background briefly. Galatians was written to Christians by the Apostle Paul, who were in churches that were scattered around a province in ancient Roman world called Galatia. They had heard and believed the gospel. They had come to salvation. They had received the Holy Spirit. Their lives had been transformed. They were walking in the Spirit. They were enjoying the fullness of the life of Christ in them. And then sadly, some false teachers came in. And they began to undermine everything that Paul had said. What he had taught them. 
These false teachers told them that the idea that you can be saved from your sins and forgiven and enter into the kingdom of God through faith alone is nonsense. It's a lie. Salvation, they said, requires adherence to the law of Moses. And without that, you cannot be saved. Before you can become a believer, you have to step into and practice those formal external behaviors of Judaism. And even though they had believed, these Galatian Christians, that salvation was by faith alone, they begin to get confused because of these false teachers. And what's very interesting is that these false teachers not only took the doctrine of salvation and said that you get saved by works, they said regarding the doctrine of sanctification... There was no hope for that. There was no hope for a life of holiness and victory over sin. No hope for becoming more like Jesus Christ. No hope for growing in grace. Apart from observing those very same rituals and ceremonies. And what happened is they brought legalism into the church. They said that is required for salvation. And notice what Paul says, and I I love this in verse 1 of chapter 3, regarding these folks, he says, you foolish Galatians, you knuckleheads, what are you thinking? (laughs) That's a loose paraphrase. I figured if Adam Schiff can paraphrase things, I can as well. I'll leave that to your discretion. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing, one thing from you. He says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? He said, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So then I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? You know what he's saying there? Simply this. He says you were brought to salvation by faith alone. Faith alone brought you the Holy Spirit. And faith alone will bring you to sanctification. You're not saved by external ceremonies, laws, rules, and regulations, contrary to what these false teachers were saying. And when you come to chapter 5, Paul starts to deal with this whole issue of sanctification. How can you and I have victory over sin? How can I walk in a way of blessing and in the power and fullness of the Spirit? And one of the most important lessons that I want to drive home, and Paul does as well, is that legalism cannot restrain the flesh. You can place rule upon rule upon rule upon an individual, but the problem with those rules is it does not impact the heart. To be sanctified, to be set apart from sin, to walk in the Spirit requires the Spirit of God residing within. Now, before we look at these verses, I really need to deal with an issue that, candidly, I'm, I'm shocked and almost embarrassed to say that I haven't addressed this in the six years that I've been the pastor of this church. 
I know some of you know this, especially those of you who sat under Pastor Ken's teaching. But to my embarrassment, and, and I dare even say my shame, I haven't talked on these three important elements regarding salvation. And one of the most important things for you and I to understand is that with regards to salvation from sin, it can be broken into three different categories. We've listed them for you in your bulletin. The first is justification. The second is sanctification. And the third is glorification. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, justification is the judicial act of God whereby we are declared righteous while still in a sinning state. It simply means that you and I are given deliverance. We're given freedom. We're given release from sin's penalty. When you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, confessing our great need of him, and we put our trust in Christ, our need for forgiveness from the punishment we deserve, we were met with with outstretched arms and an open hand. And you know what Jesus said to us when we, we acknowledged that? He said, yes. Come on in. You're part of my family. Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sins when we trusted Jesus Christ and we receive from God when we put our trust in Jesus Christ freedom from the penalty of all of our sins past, present, and future. We are justified before God, our judge, because the penalty has been paid by the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. That punishment for sin could never have been paid by you. It could never have been paid by me. You know why? Because we're sinners. And the only one who could have done that was the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our justification is behind us. It's a past occurrence. We were saved from sin's penalty the moment we trusted Jesus Christ. It is a one-time past event in the life of the believer. You know what that means? You don't have to trust Jesus Christ for salvation every Sunday you're here. Whenever you hear, just as I am, you don't have to walk the aisle. Now, by contrast... Sanctification is a process, and it happens over time. It's where you and I are given freedom and victory and liberty from sin's power. Justification deals with the penalty of sin. Sanctification deals with the power of sin in our life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians rather, 1, verses 20 through 21, now that the grace of God has been set upon us as a permanent seal, we are being made new. We are being transformed from a life of sin. We're being changed to a life of holiness. We're set free from the power of sin. Before we were justified, our broken wills were utterly subject to the power of sin. Every choice we made was a choice towards sin. 
And even when we made choices that appeared good from an external standpoint, they really were choices that were sinful because they were done to glorify self and not God. Now, because we are Christians, the power of sin has been broken. And we've been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. In the past, we chose only to sin. Now we have the power. And hopefully, as you walk with God longer in a life of obedience, there's a growing desire to choose righteousness. You and I who were once slaves to sin's power are now free to serve God. Admittedly, we don't always use our freedom for God or for good. We still sin. But hopefully over time, with increased victories, with an awareness of the terrible consequences of sin and the joy and the blessing and the delights that obedience brings, with the power of the Word of God in our life as we take God's Word in, we learn increasingly to choose holiness. And we do what Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we learn to choose righteousness instead of sin. Sanctification is an ongoing, slow-moving growth process in holiness as we are being saved from sin's power. So you've got justification. You've got sanctification. And the final aspect of our salvation is glorification. And that is where we will be delivered or saved from sin's very presence. Isn't that great? I hope you look forward to that day. You know, we will fight to grow in holiness our entire earthly lives, and we never, ever arrive. By the way, don't ever let anybody tell you they have. Pour a cup of cold water over their head while they're not looking, and you'll see just how sanctified they are. (laughs) But you know what? When you and I come to the end of our life, where we have run the race and fought the good fight, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, we are going to enter into the presence of the Lord forever, and we will be glorified, and in his presence our soul will be complete, we will be fully known, and sin and its devastation And devastating effects will cease to assail us. That's a wonderful and glorious thing to think about. In this life, we're surrounded by sin on all sides. In this life, sin continues to assail us. In this life, we make terrible choices. But there is coming a day in the not-too-distant future when we will go to a place where sin is no more. And you and I will trade the persistent presence of sin for the perfect presence of the Lord. That's heaven. We will be saved from sin's presence. Now, in Galatians 5, 16 and following, Paul is talking about the issue of sanctification. Earlier in the book, he's dealt with the issue of justification. And now he's talking about that battle that is taking place in the inner man 
And the reason he does so is because with all of that talk about freedom, it would be easy to think that the Christian life is just one spiritual triumph after another. Being a Christian is just a walk in the park. And it's not. You know that. I know that. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, if you become a Christian, you shouldn't have any struggles. You should never get discouraged. All of life is peace and joy, love and happiness. Friend, that is not true. And the reason for that is as long as you and I are sucking air, we're going to be in the presence of sin. But you know what? We have the power to have victory over sin. And we can defeat Satan. And the reality is that the Christians offer, often suffer bitter defeats. We don't always want to serve. We don't always want to love. We don't always want to walk by faith. We oftentimes fail to walk worthy of our calling. We fail to walk as Jesus walked. We fail to do what, what he wants us to do. And so the million-dollar question is simply this. How do you explain the apparent contradiction between our freedom and our failings? I mean, if I've got this freedom in Christ, as Paul's talked about throughout this letter, why do I find myself failing so often? Martin Luther, who was the great reformer, faced that same dilemma. He tried to live a godly life, and there were times, if you've read his biographies, where he was tempted to sin, and not just tempted, there were times when he committed very, very fleshly sins. And that made him, as it happens often with you and I, to question his salvation. Have you ever felt that way? You know, you're living your life and you think, my shattered nerves. What am I thinking? What am I doing? I must not be a Christian. And you question your salvation. Friend, one of the verses that helped Luther most in that spiritual struggle came from Galatians 5, 17, where it says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. There is a battle. In fact, it's interesting in Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, he said this, Martin, you will never be completely without sin because you still have the flesh. Therefore, you will always be aware of its conflict. According to the statement of Paul, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Do not despair, therefore, Martin, but fight back and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Friend, there's a battle, a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. On the one hand, you want to do certain things, and on the other hand, you don't want to do certain things. And as Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things I ought to be doing. In fact, one commentator said that this conflict that's taking place is like two giant sumo wrestlers trying to push each other out of the ring. 
You know, this morning, on Sundays, I get up at 4 o'clock and review my message. And I had written that out of a commentary, and I thought, that's interesting. I wonder how big sumo wrestlers really are. So I Googled it on the internet this morning, around 4.30. Of the top 39 sumo wrestlers in the world, the largest is 644 pounds, and of the top 39, the lightest is a very svelte 440 pounds. Now, can you imagine those two guys being in a ring, just slamming into each other, trying to knock the other one out of the ring? You know what Paul says? Paul says that's what's happening in this battle of the flesh against the spirit. Of the sinful nature against the regenerate nature. And the result is we don't always do what we ought to be doing. In fact, let me just have you listen to Paul's description of this battle that's taking place. He talks about it in Romans 7. He says, I do not understand my own actions. Boy, can anybody identify with that? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Friend, that is the spiritual condition of the believer. When Paul says in verse 17, you do not do what you want, he's talking to Christians in Galatia, who had received the Spirit of God and were members of the church of Jesus Christ. And he says there's a battle going on. And as I was thinking about this, I, it suddenly dawned on me that in some cases, in some instances, your life was probably a tad easier before you became a Christian. You know why? Because back then, you only had one influence in your life. That was that old, fallen, sinful nature. That Eichmann in all of us. There was no contest for your heart. There was no tug of war for your soul. But you know what happened when you trusted Jesus Christ? God the Holy Spirit came in and he set up a kingdom in your heart that was opposed to the kingdom that is already there. As I was thinking about this, I came across a very interesting poem. It said, To nature's beat within my breast, the one is foul, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. Isn't that true? You know what Paul's saying in these verses? He's saying there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. In fact, Martin Luther, again in his commentary, said that the Christian is partly righteous and partly sinner. That's a good definition of the life. We're, we're pulled back and forth in two different directions. And there is, as one man said, an irreconcilable antagonism that's taking place. Now that's as far as I want to go this morning. But I want to close with three lessons 
And the first one is this. We need to recognize that the Christian life will always be a struggle. Don't buy into that nonsense that becoming a Christian will solve all of life's problems. It doesn't. Our flesh desires what is contrary to God's spirit, so never be surprised when sin enters your life. God will never make us perfect in this life. We will battle throughout this life. And the question is, why is the flesh so powerful? Why is it so stubborn? Let me suggest two reasons. Number one, in some cases, you were a non-Christian a lot longer than you've been a Christian. And it may very well be that your flesh has a 20, 30, 40-year head start on your new nature. While the Bible says that old things have passed away, some of those tendencies and habits of the flesh continue on, right? Some of the things you learned and practiced when you weren't a Christian have dug deep grooves into your mind and into your soul. And even when you become a believer, those grooves, those ruts, are not automatically erased. There's old habits and old patterns that are still there. And you know what we have to do? We have to choose a new direction. And we're going to talk about that next week. Where he says you need to walk by the Spirit. What in the world does that mean? Well, you'll have to come back next Sunday. But you know, there's a second reason why this battle is, is an ongoing one. And that is the influence of our culture, right? You know, it's no contest as to what our culture is promoting. It constantly showcases the flesh. Just glance at the magazine covers as you're waiting to check out at the grocery store. Try to find a decent movie to go to today. Try to find a TV program worth watching, and it's a challenge. And every place you turn, there's a tugging away towards our flesh. And it's calling you, and it's winking at you, and it's teasing you, and it's seeking to bend your thoughts and to play with your emotions. And it pops up everywhere you turn. I have been absolutely blown away by some of the things I've seen on billboards. But I think there's a second thing we need to remember. And that is, don't let sin and your grief over sin cause you to doubt your salvation. You know, sometimes people, in their naivete, not understanding this battle that's going on, think, how in the world can I be a Christian if I'm struggling in this area? And they're just overwhelmed with grief and guilt. Listen, the very fact that you're grieving over your sins is evidence that you are a Christian. That ought to warm your heart. And the final lesson we need to realize is this. That war is not going to last forever. I love that. We are not fighting a losing battle. The struggle between the flesh and the spirit will not end in a stalemate. One day the spirit will gain total victory and the flesh will be able to torment us no longer. 
And we'll be free from sin. We'll be free to serve. We'll be free to fulfill God's law. We'll be free to do what God wants us to do. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. Sometimes I don't like what I see when I look in the mirror. Now, I'm not that bad. Don't some of you think, boy, we need a new pastor. Again, the longer I think you walk with the Lord, the more sensitive you become. And uh, sometimes I can get pretty emotional in that area. It breaks my heart. We're going to talk about how we can have victory next week. So be sure to be here. Let's pray. Father, it is a great testimony to the authorship of the Bible that wherever we go in Scripture, we find it harmonizing together perfectly. And we're grateful for a repeated theme throughout the New Testament that you've called us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're grateful that you've given to us a perfect model of that in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to walk as he walked, to live as he lived, and that we would manifest in our lives the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Help us to live lives that bring you glory, that bring you honor. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, this is our prayer this morning and together we ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.